Welcome, Grace Point. Welcome. Uh, if you're a part of our family, uh, you got an email from me this past Thursday. If you didn't, I'm your spam, okay? Look for me in spam. And I take offense to that, so don't don't confess. About a quarter of you have already filled out the survey that we sent out annually. We sent it out last year, and I promise you what you said last year so rocked us and shaped us that even we're living in the moment uh, that we're living in right now was shaped in part by what you shared on that survey. That survey is very important for us to look into. It gives us an opportunity to hear from you where we are, but it also gives that opportunity, that forum for you to speak into the future and where you feel like God's leading. So it's it's just a a kind of a a dual purpose thing. So that's in your inbox. Find it, fill it out. You have until May 1st, and we're going to compile all that and look at that and listen in, pray through that uh, as uh, as it's leading up to. I promise it'll take a couple of minutes, but the ripple effects will be for years. Not not, not a sales pitch, really, truly. We will shape a lot of what we are going into based on what you say and where you're you're at in your own walk with God. And so let me just tell you about another date to save. It's June 3rd. It is our annual strategy meeting day. We're calling this a day of awakening where we just want to see God just do something in us that maybe has been dormant for a while. Maybe we haven't seen and experienced it. We understand that we can be the future today and how we can be a part of that. And this is just something, again, from what you share with us, from what we see as we walk along beside you throughout the year, this is something that you get to help be a part of. We cannot do it, obviously, without you. So please uh, join in and be a part. Just take that canvas and begin to draw and to wire as the master artist, uh, the Lord speaks into your heart and you kind of help get to do that. Now, I talk about art as if I know what I'm talking about, but I really don't know anything about what I'm talking about when it comes to art. Uh, I am I'm an art appreciator, if that's even a word. I'm kind of growing into the, into the art scene. I like what we've done in the gallery area of having different artists come in. Right now, there's, a, there's some work out there by a guy named Dick Davison. And uh, if you haven't seen, it's the largest display that I think we've had out of all of our displays and pretty impressive. I like it most of all, not just seeing the art, whether you like that kind of art or you don't like it. Maybe you're contemporary or maybe you're an impressionist or whatever. Like I know what, again, what I'm talking about. Um, you know, maybe whatever it is, you're, I really enjoy hearing the stories behind the artists. And so I love it when Tim will have or the team will have somebody come in that has done the art and we get to hear the art. And, and Dick was with us a few weeks ago and and we had this reception and he talked about how some of this art has been in process for a decade, literally, and how he took, it took strokes and time and thoughts and prayers and then how he would take this canvas over here and he knit it with this canvas over here and how it tells this continuing story and how he didn't necessarily know it was going to be there in the end, but how God just kind of orchestrated just like he does in us. Sometimes we don't know where he's stroking and where he's chiseling and where he's piecing and where he's doing things together. But I think art is a very much a, a great metaphor for who we are. And we're in this mosaic series about, about how God takes the brokenness of our life and how he makes it a beautiful mosaic. And how does he do that? And sometimes that means he's going to have to chisel off some rough edges. Sometimes he's going to have to put some pieces with us that we don't want to, we're kind of embarrassed of, but it, it's really a part of our story. And how is God shaping us through this story and 
That's what we've been talking about through the book of Romans. And so I want us to do something today is I want us to do a quick flyover where we've come from and because we're going to talk about the artist today, the artist of our story. And so we're going to get to know the artist behind who we're about. But let's kind of back up and catch everyone up to speed so we're all on the same page. And so if you remember the first eight chapters that we went through, in the first eight chapters, it was very sequential. Okay, A equals B equals C equals D. It was very clear. You can follow along and see how we're broken, how Jesus comes and enters into our mess, and how through his entering into our mess, we can become whole and how he makes us whole. And you can kind of follow it in a sequential order. Now, it's heavy theology, light on application. You kind of have to find the application yourself, and we try to do our best to try to help help, help the, to bring tease that out as we can. Now, when we go to the end of Romans, Romans chapter 12 to, to, to 16, it's going to be high application and low theology. Not that theology is not important, but theology was established, and now because of our theology, our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves, we're going to now be able to see that fleshed out in our day-to-day life. Now, if you notice, if you do the math there, I've left out some chapters because that's where we're at now. We're in chapter 9 through chapter 11, which is what I'm calling the parentheses, okay? We're kind of in this parenthetical chapters here, and I call it the scramble chapters. And I mean that in the sense that it's not uh, it's not all loosely thrown in there, but it's kind of loosely thrown in there, all right? There's a lot in there. There's a lot more than I can share in one Sunday. And so we're going to actually look at it, try as best we can uh, to make sense of it, but just... So I'm not alone in this. One of my great favorite Bible teachers to listen to is Chuck Swindoll. He said it like this. This section is clearly difficult because it defies what we would consider logic. So this, what we're going to deal with is going to tease your brain. Okay. It's going to tease your soul. And so please hang with me on this. As we go into this, this is not going to be easy, light stuff today. Okay. In fact, some of it, it may not set well with you. Some of it, you may agree with some of it may go whoop. Okay. Uh, some of it will go into a conversation pool that you're going to have with other people later on as you sort it out and, and you tease it out yourself. But let's just talk about chapter nine. So chapter nine deals with the sovereignty of God. Okay. Big word. I know God's in control. God's on the throne. God's the king of the universe. He's the boss. He is in control. And it also deals with Israel's past. So it kind of uses Israel as a very key part of telling the God story. Israel plays a big part. It's God's chosen people. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments, but really God tells his story. Even though there's a lot of things that are going on in the world, God tells his story primarily through the, through the, the nation of Israel. So it's Israel past, but it's dealing with the sovereignty of God. Now, some people have a struggle with the sovereignty of God because really they like, okay, God understands it all. God knows it all. Then what are we doing here? He knew the beginning before the end. Have you ever, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Think about that. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? God understands it all. God knew it all. God knew it before it's happened. He, in fact, he even knows who's going to heaven in the end. I know that. I know you think, oh, I don't get to decide that. We'll get there in a moment. But, but the point is, is that he wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the world. He knows the storyline from beginning to end because he's looking down on it. We're looking at it. Think about it like that. Nothing ever occurs to God. Everything is full in full awareness of God. He is in full control. He never loses control. Okay, point chapter 10 though. 
it's going to deal with man's responsibility. God's sovereignty is in chapter 9. We're going to really try to unpack that today, but we're going to also deal with man's responsibility, man's will. Man has a will in this. Holy God's in, if God's in control, then how do I have a will in the midst of all of this? And yes, we're going to have to reconcile these two because they are not separate. They are together. They are sequential in chapter, but they're also sequential in thought. They do go together even though it will blow our minds. All right? When you think about it, there's a lot of people who love to dive into Romans 9. There's all of people who spend months in Romans 9. John Piper was a professor at Bethel College in 1979. He took a sabbatical, and all he did in his sabbatical was study through chapter 9. It was his goal to come out of there, and he actually came out of there writing a book on just all the different views of chapter 9. And you can spend a whole lot of time being engrossed in chapter 9. But my friend, there is also man's responsibility in chapter 10. Now, I know some good folks that have preached through Romans, and they skip over chapter 9, and they come to Romans 10, and they have a heyday in Romans 10. And so you have got to, ba- you have got to share from the balance of Scripture that there is the sovereignty of God and there is the free will of man. There is the responsibility of man in the end. Now, how does this work out? Again, I'm a simpleton. I'm trying to bring the cookies to the bottom shelf in my own head all along. So here's my summary statement. Jot it down. Remember it however you will. In God's sovereignty, he has built in a level of human responsibility. If you're God, you get to make the rules up, right? You get to make the rules up. You get to decide how it's going to go. You get to decide if the trees are going to go up out of the ground or they're going to grow into the ground. Or they actually grow both ways, I guess. And you're going to decide if the sky's blue or it's going to be green. Or You get to decide that if you're God. And you get to decide how much control you have over the world and how much control you give to mankind. And so to say that we're puppets, no, not at all. At the same time, to say that we have control over this world and we get to control our own destiny, Invictus, if you will. We get to be the masters of our own destiny. Absolutely not. Somewhere in there, there is a balance. Think about it like this. Is Jesus, is God, is he king or is he judge? Because in reality, they're opposed to one another. If you live them out, a king is a ruler in control of everything of his domain. He is the sovereign. A judge is a person who rules over his kingdom whether when they did right or wrong. Listen, what God did is he built into the fabric that he is both judge and he is king. He is both in control at the same time he allows us to have free will in some matters of life and death. Think about it like this. Here's a modern day example. So it's prom season around here right now. Some of y'all did this very act right last last night. When your kids went to prom, you did this right here. You took the car keys and you handed it in some pimple-faced little girl or boy's hand and you said, here are the keys to the family car. Now, what did you do as a parent? You were the sovereign over that car. At least the bank says that. You're the one that's paying the note. You put gas in the car. You made sure it was clean. You made sure it was ready to go out for prom night. And I guarantee you, whenever it comes back in, if you haven't already done it, you're going to go out this afternoon. You're going to check the miles. How far did you go? Where did you go? You're going to check for dings and scratches, and you're going to check the inside and outside of the car. You're going to understand because you are the sovereign of that car. But what did you do on last night? You gave the keys to somebody else. And you gave them uh, somewhat control. 
of what they did with the, with the sovereign thing that you were over. So let's think about that. Again, deep thoughts today, I know, but hang with me on chapter 11, what we're going to deal with, and we're going to just skim across it, and I promise you that, and that'll be more next week. Israel's uh, as God's chosen people and the, the, just God's promise and Israel's future. And so we're going to deal with that. But Israel is a big part in this, okay? Israel's not the primary figure in this. If you have your Bibles, be finding the book of Romans chapter 9. We'll be there in a moment. Scroll there, what have you, ever got to get there. We've got to remember, that God is the lead actor of all the story. He is the pinnacle. We, Israel included in that, are all the supporting actors to the major story. We got to remember he's, a, he's at the top, we're at the bottom. We're supporting him. He's not supporting us. It's not in an inverted triangle. He's not there to take care of our needs. We're there to worship and honor him and bring glory to him. And so somehow in God's equation of all of his sovereignty, when he, and he was planning out this, this world, and again, if I can put it in a simpleton kind of way, 17,000 different people groups populate the planet today around a certain language, a certain culture, or whatever. He chose uh, Israel. He chose this little tiny group of people out in the Middle East, He said, and from that group right there, I'm going to do an incredible thing. You're going to be my chosen people. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through that one little people group out there. Now, Romans 9 points this out to us as well. So I'm just, again, so all in introduction laying the foundation. So he mentions, he says in verse 4, he says, they are Israelites. Now, I'm going to use Israelites, I'm going to use Hebrew people, I'm going to use Jewish people, all in the same and uh, synonymous. And to them belong, I'm just going to run through these really quickly, uh, belong what? Adoption. God chose them. They didn't choose God. All right? They chose God. God could have chose the Hittites. He could have chose the Philistines. He could have chose the Canaanites. He didn't. He chose the Israelites. They're adopted. This is the glory. Notice that. The next word, the glory. The glory was the Shekinah glory of God. The very presence of God was always with the nation of Israel. It was a it was a pillar of fire by night. It was the it was a pillar of cloud by day, and it was the uh, it was the fire by night that led and protected them, and that was always with them uh, in in their journeys. Even when they were in the wilderness, God was with them. It's covenants. You think about all the covenants that are given in the Old Testament. First of all, in Genesis chapter twelve, when He gave it to Abraham, and then He gives one to Moses, and He gives one to David, and He gives one to Jacob. He gives all these different covenants out, and you can list them all out and read them for yourself. So He's establishing a relationship with the people of Israel. Okay. That's going to be for all the nations of the world. But right now he's working through the people of Israel. He's giving them the law. He does does that to Moses. Moses on Mount Sinai. Just read that passage just yesterday in my own Bible study. We'll talk about it tomorrow in my men's group. And so giving the law and worship. The worship was in the temple. It was in the tabernacle. Then it went to the temple and then it went to the second temple. And it was where the Holy of Holies was. It was where God resided in the earth. Now, again, fast forward to the New Testament. The temple is now in every believer. Now, again, a lot more than I can cover in a, in a day, so we'll just leave it at that. But in the Old Testament, he gave it to the Israelites. In promises, there's so many promises that led up, hundreds of promises that led up to the very uh, coming thing here that we're about to talk about, the patriarchs also. This is like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these great founders of the faith that even people of all many religions of the world still look to to this day. But then he said this next thing, and it kind of ends there. And from their race, Israelites, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, 
Over all, blessed forever. Amen. Listen, I don't care what you think about Israel today and where you think we should be taking care of them today. We'll just say that debate for another day. But you cannot mistake the fact that God used the nation of Israel to do something incredible through them. Now here, when you come to this passage and we're dealing with this passage, I'll promise you this, that a warning should be placed over Romans 9 because it can be dangerous to your faith. All right? It's going to rock some of you. It's going to take you deeper than maybe you really intended to go this early in the morning. You didn't have enough cups of coffee. I can't even speak it out. We're going to talk about clay that was made for destruction. We're going to talk about hardening of hearts. We're going to talk about how God hates some and loves others. Think about that. Wrestle those down. In fact, Rick Warren said it like this. Romans 9 creates more questions than it answers. But I promise if you stay here long enough, and you understand what God is doing throughout human history up until the New Testament and even today, you will actually find that Romans 9 will ignite a heart of worship in you. It can mess with you if you study it on a surface level. It will confuse you if you just study it on a surface level. But if you let it sink deep inside of you, you will understand. You will understand a core principle that there is a God and you are not him. We need to let God be God. He, he's big. He's able. He's, he's, he, he wants to do incredibly beyond what we can ask or think. But in Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God in, is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Again, he is the lead actor in this story. Let us not miss that. So what we're going to do is we're going to Netflix the Bible. Okay? Anybody binge watch things? Okay? All right, everybody at the same, no, come on. Does anybody binge watch Netflix? Raise your hand, okay. All right, all at once, I want you to tell me your favorite binge watching, okay? Breaking Bad. Whoa, one, two, three, Breaking Bad. All right, so whatever it was that you're been, we're gonna binge watch the Old Testament right here, okay? Um, and we're gonna literally cover 1,500 years in a matter of 17 minutes and 19 seconds that I have left. So listen fast. You're gonna have to listen fast and take a lot of fast notes. We're gonna talk about how God chose a guy named Jacob over Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn. We're gonna talk about how God chose a pagan king to use, it was actually his purpose, and he, he, he compares and contrasts that to Moses. We're gonna talk about how, how God chose this little guy out in the middle of Ur to start a whole nation. We're going to talk about how he had two sons. He had Ishmael, but he didn't choose Ishmael. He was his firstborn. He actually chose another guy named Isaac. It was his secondborn. And how God chooses things. But when you're God, you can do what you can do because you're God, okay? We've got to just surrender again and again to the fact that if God doesn't operate the way I want him to operate, that's okay because he's God and I'm not. And I just need to let God be God. So here's some choices that God gets to make and that we just get to kind of go, okay, you're God and I'm going to just step in line with you because we got to realize that sometimes they're going to use a word like election and that's going to scare some people because it's been a little bit distorted. I want, to, I want us to de- detox a little bit. Since the 1500s, there's been this influx of, of different ideas and so forth that was not even there in church history. There was not even in the first 300 years conversations like we have since the 1500s that have created denominations and divisions and, and arguments and fights and schisms that I don't even want to, want to get to. But I want to detox from that. And I want to go back to the first century. So let's look at this from a historical perspective. What was God doing in the nation of Israel? One, he chooses race, excuse me, he chooses grace over race. Yes, Israel was special. Yes, Israel was 
the choice. And, and, and to, just for the sake of time, I want you to go back to the very first book of the Bible because I want you to see this highlighted, underscored. Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to take, take just a quick look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This needs to be highlighted in your Bible, okay? Bold-faced in your Bible. Because this is kind of where it all begins with the nation of Israel. They're born with Abram here. And now the Lord said to Abram, Go from the, your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you. Now, notice all the promises that God gives to Abram. I will show you. I will make you a great nation. He hadn't done it yet, but he's going to do it. And I will bless you. Isn't that awesome? And I will make your name great and that you will be a blessing. It's not just a, you're going to be great so you can be great. You're going to be great so you can be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So I want to even protect you through the centuries. And in all the families of the earth will be blessed. He brings it back to the whole earth. Yes, I'm going to start with a little, little guy named Abram over here in the middle of the little town of Ur. And, and I'm going to raise him up. But he's going to make a great nation. And the entire earth will be blessed through this guy. That's pretty cool. And a race was born. An ethnicity, an ethnicity was born. A people group was born on that day. But now just keeping that in mind, let us go to verse 6 back in Romans chapter 9. But it is not through the word of God that has failed. Now again, where are we coming off? We're coming right off the passage that just talked about all the ways that God had chosen Israel and had blessed them for all that he did. He says, for not all, not all, not all, not all, who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's kind of big. So just because your daddy and your daddy and your great, 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 is Abraham doesn't mean that you are a part of God's family. Not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, what does that mean? It means pretty much this, that just because you carry the passport of an Israeli doesn't mean that you're protected. There's a group out there today that will tell you that, 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 oh, if you're a part of the uh, Israeli nation, then you are automatically free pass into heaven. Absolutely, positively not. In Romans chapter uh, 9, verse 7, it says it like this, or or actually chapter uh, 2, verse 28. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise of Abraham, okay, that promise we just read a few moments ago in Genesis 12, and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world, did not come through the law, but came through the righteousness of faith. So it's going to be a faith relationship, not a law relationship. It's not because you're born into this. It's because there's going to be a faith relationship that you're going to have this relationship with God. Now in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's not about the foreskin. It's about the heart. Where is your heart? It's not about the law. It's about faith and grace and the work of God. It's so important that we understand that 
that yes, Israel was important, but Israel did not create this little utopia of God's blessings and kingdom that you had to, as an individual, have a faith relationship with God. Okay, that's important because, because some people might have this sense of entitlement because I am a Jew, because I'm a Hebrew, because I'm this, I am automatically in the good graces of God. But actually, the scripture does not support that any more than the occupational hazard of my three kids growing up in our home because they're pastor's kids and because they were missionaries' kids and because they helped set up the church when we were just portable and we didn't have anything and because they did all this great work in the church and because they were the founding members of the church. That doesn't give them a free pass into heaven. Lori and I have prayed so many times, God, help our children to own their faith deeply. It's our commitment as a, as a church pastoral team that we want to help you help your kids own their faith on their own deeply because you can't do it for them. They got to have that relationship themselves. So it's not based on race. It's based on grace. And God chose number two, a purpose over a tradition. See, traditionally in Hebrew culture, the first child born received everything. Now, that's a pretty sweet package if you're the first child. Pretty stinky if you're the second one, third, or fourth. What do they say? If you're the second place, you're the first loser. That's true in the Hebrew culture. You're the first loser if you're the second born. But if you're the first born, you got it made. However, that was not true of Ishmael. That was not true of a guy named Esau. And what we're going to do in a matter of two verses, we're going to cover about a hundred, about a hundred years. We're going to cover 13 chapters and you can look it up for yourself and read it for yourself in Genesis 12 to 25. This is the section that we're going to cover. We're going to cover it in two verses. Look with me at verse nine. So verse nine says, for this is what the promise said about the time next year, we will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now that's no big deal to you and I who are young and spry and childbearing years. Okay. But if you're a 90-year-old man, which Abram was, and Sarah is past menopause, there's not a purple pill out there that'll fix that, okay? There's no answer for that outside of God just decided to give them a child late in life, okay? And not only so, but also when Rebecca had be, had conceived, and we're going to fast forward through three generations here of one man and a forefather, Isaac. And now we go all the way to a guy named Isaac. So we go from Abraham to Isaac, and then we're going to go to a guy named Jacob. And what's going to happen next, and you're going to see in this passage, is something that's going to get kind of controversial. And what happens next is Isaac has a couple of boys and they're twins and they're not identical in personality at all. You read the text for yourself. You can read that in chapter 25 of, uh, of Genesis, but you can, you can find, you can find that they're two totally different kids, even though they're twins. Literally Esau's born first and it's almost as if uh, they were racing out because it says that, uh, that Jacob had a hold of his heel. Okay. And they were coming right out literally on the heels of one another. And so he's born. But then this, this interchange happens. Now notice verse 11. I didn't read it. Now I want to read it. And they were not yet born and done nothing either good or bad. All right? Wouldn't matter good or bad. Wouldn't matter, okay, you did this and so you get this. No, no, no. In order that God's purpose, see, everything comes back to God's purpose. He's working and working and working and working and working, working up to something. Okay? It's all about him. Again, there is a God and I'm not him. And 
Well, let him be God. And the election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And she was told of the older will serve the younger. That's totally counter-traditional culture. But because God has a purpose and God's going to use and God's going to do and God's going to work, then this statement is made. Now understand this. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I want to stop right there because that stumps a lot of people and it stumped me to be honest with you for a long time. Because I, hold on, some people have used this for some un- unconditional election kind of theology that has developed uh, since the 1500s. I'm not there. That, that God hates some born and God loves others born. In fact, whenever you really study it, again, I, I used a hermeneutical principle back in the very first message series, uh, the very first message in Romans series last year, as Randy politely pointed out a year ago. But uh, as we, uh, as we are, we're doing this series, the law of first mentions, the best way to interpret the scripture is to understand something from the law of first mentions. And the first time this is mentioned that God loved one and hated another is in Malachi chapter one. So I consulted with Walter Kaiser, who's the number one leading Old Testament scholar of our day. So whenever it's mentioned there, Paul brings it into the New Testament and he mentions that Jacob have I love and Esau have I hated. What was he talking about? Edomites become out of, out of Esau and, and, uh, and, and Israel comes out of Jacob and Jacob becomes these 12 tribes of Israel and, and, and then again, the lineage goes right on. But it wasn't as if God hated Esau. It, he uses what Kaiser calls as a Hebrew idiom or what we might call in our language today a hyperbole. He draws something out and really emphasizes something to prove a point. See, Jacob said, it says in Scripture that Jacob hated Leah, but he loved Rachel, his wife. What was it? He really hated his wife? No, no, no. He loved his wife, but man, he had a favorite. He had a favorite. He had one that he leaned towards. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you're, you're not going to be able to love, you're not going to be able to have two masters because either you will hate one and you will love the other, Matthew 6, 24. He's using a Hebrew idiom or a hyperbole. Or this is the one that stumps some people, I know, Matthew 10, 27. If you're going to follow me, you've got to love me first and hate your mother and your brother and your sister and all that. So literally, is God saying, hey, I want you to hate your mother. and your That flies contrary to other parts of Scripture. If we're going to see Scripture as interpreting Scripture, if we're going to understand Scripture as a whole, now if we want to take chapter 9 and just study chapter 9, as some people have dove in deep, stay down long and come up dry, just studying chapter 9. Or if we want to understand it in the whole, we've got to understand it in the whole. And what he's doing here, he's not saying he hates one and loves the other. He's saying, listen, I have chosen a special place and a special selection not to separate, not to say I don't love, not to say I don't have a plan for, not to say I don't have a purpose for. Many scholars pointed out as I was preparing for this that Ishmael and Esau were both a part of the covenant of Abraham. We're both a part of that family covenant. And so God just had a special plan for Jacob. God was doing something unique and it was protecting his lineage because God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ would be born through that line. So I, I, I don't, I don't get 
disturbed any longer over Esau have I loved. Or Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. I get stuck on the Jacob have I loved part. Because when you look at the life of Jacob, he was weak. He was a scoundrel. He was a cheat. He was a manipulator. He was a swindler. He was insecure. He took advantage of other people. That is the guy that God said, I love. See, I think when we see this, we see the bigness of God is that God can pull somebody aside and say, I'm going to do something special, unique, and beautiful with you, but I don't care how much your rap sheet is there. I can do something beautiful and awesome through you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to steer you. But it doesn't mean to the exclusion of the other. So let's keep that in mind. There is a God. I'm not him. Let God be God. The third choice that God gets to make is God chooses mercy over fairness. You got to hang on to this one. Because if you're wanting a fair God, you have come to the wrong place. He's not fair. And you'll be thankful he's not fair in a moment. Because when you understand that we are all broken people and you want the fairness of God, then really what you're saying is you want justice on yourself. And really you don't want justice. What you want is mercy and compassion. You want that. That's what you really want. The problem is is that some people have made it and say, well, God has chosen to give mercy to this one and not to this one. Now hang on. Does that mean he chose this one for hell and this one for heaven? I'm not going to go there. Romans 2, verse 11. Again, keep weaving Romans into this. Romans says that God does not play favorites. There's not a favorite out there. There's a fine line here. So verse 14, follow along. Again, I'm taking you back to the word as much as I can. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? Oh, by no means. Uses the same phrase he used back in chapter 6. By no absolutely way is God unjust. For he says... Moses, referring to Moses, and that's all you can refer to Moses. Now he's going to turn to another guy. Then I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on the human will or excursion, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says Pharaoh. Now he brings Pharaoh into it. Now we all know Pharaoh is this pagan king out there. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. Now that's ironic that I might show my power in you that you may that you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now how is it that a pagan king God would literally have as a part of his person that he would raise up a pagan king so that God's name would be made great. Now notice again it keeps coming back to his name being great in the earth. Why was Abraham chosen so that his name would be great he would bless all the nations of the earth. It comes back to the whole earth. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But notice that God chose to use a pagan king. Why? Because I think Pharaoh needed to learn that there is a God and Pharaoh's not him. You need to let God be God. You need to bow your life to him. Again, some have liked to interpret this as a limited atonement that God said, hey, listen, Pharaoh, I'm going to harden your heart. I'm going to harden your heart in 10 different times in Scripture. It says, it does say that God's going to harden his heart. He's going to harden his heart. But the problem is, is many of those people do not come back and reference the nine times that it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So who is to blame? Who hardened whose heart? Did God intentionally come in to take an innocent heart and make it hard so that he could not come to faith? Or was it that Pharaoh, which is where I lean, or was it that Pharaoh 
had a hardened heart. And God said, okay, you can have your hardened heart. Okay, you got it. It's harder again. Okay, it's harder again. And where do I base this? Again, I want to tie it back to Romans. Romans chapter 1. What does he say? Whenever the God, whenever those people would not repent of their sins, what does he say? He turned them over to their sins. He let them go their way. Just like he'll let us go our way. So I believe Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent, but God was doing something even big. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, you can read it for yourself. God does the same thing, but he does it with the ears. They weren't listening to God, so what does he say? I'll just make you dull of hearing. Now, how is it? Because they refuse to obey. They refuse to obey. Okay, well, I'm just going to let you, let your sin take you where your sin will take you. Pharaoh, here he is. He is the king of Egypt. He is the ruler. Now, let's understand the theology of Egyptian uh, thought here for just a second. Ra was the, he, was the Egyptian god. Ra, R-A, really easy to spell. Ra was the Egyptian god. Who was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was the god incarnate, guard in, in the flesh. He was the Jesus, if you will, of the Egyptian religion. So you have Ra, superior god, putting on earth Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was to keep order on the planet. He was to keep the, the nature in order. He was to keep everything in order. And if things were in order, then God, Ra was happy and Pharaoh was happy. So what happens whenever the river Nile turns to blood? That absolutely cut them off from life, right? If you notice, the Nile River is the source of life in the Egyptian valley. What happens whenever the, 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 the darkness comes upon the planet? There are 10 plagues that happened across the land. Every one of the 10 plagues was defeating the theology of the Egyptians. It was tearing it down to point to one thing. There is one God. You're not him, Pharaoh, and you better bow yourself to him. One after another, one after another, tearing down the Egyptian deity worship is because God is a very jealous God. It says in Exodus 34, 14, and he will not give his glory to another. God is very jealous. And so God uses this king to, to, to bring him down, giving him every opportunity to repent. But he continued in this hubris born of success, continued to fight against God. God said, okay, okay. Okay, and every time he just tore down another deity in his life. And then what happens? He, he gives a word picture, and I'm completely out of time. But uh, uh, you've got to see this because it's another controversial thing. Verse 19, he starts into a word picture that's trying to describe the verses prior to this. And he talks about pottery and a clay pot. And how does a pot get to decide? So I'm going to pick it up in verse, uh, um, verse 21. It has the potter. Uh, no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God makes vessels, people, for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory, the vessels of mercy that he has prepared. Paul is in no way suggesting that God has the right to create beings in order to punish them, but rather that he has the right as being the God of the universe to deal with sinful beings according to his character. And listen, if we choose a pathway, if we choose to be Pharaohs of our own destiny, then God will just take 
It could be your job. It could be your career path. It could be your five-year plan. It could be your retirement. And if that becomes the God of your life, guess what? God has all the right in the world to go and just go, okay, I'll take care of that. Okay, I'll take care of that relationship if that becomes God. And he can just take it and remove it out of our life and watch our lives crumble. Does he do it to be mean to us? No, he does it to bring us to humility and to realize that we have a hardened heart and we need a new heart. Like it says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone. Yes, you can have hearts of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. God sways hearts. He turns hearts. He melts hearts and he allows hearts to be hardened so that he can show himself strong. One last thing that God gets to choose in this passage. He chooses many things. He chooses nations over nation. Yes, Israel is important in the kingdom of God as he brings them forward year after year, tragedy, through, through famine, through, through persecution, through holocaust. He brought them through. He brought them through it all. But he brought them through for a purpose, that the Messiah would be born, that the gospel would be told. And Hosea points out, and I don't have time to read it in verse 25 and following, but Hosea points out that God's going to love people that most people won't love or the Jewish people won't love. He said God's going to love them. And, and in Isaiah, he brings out Isaiah and how in Isaiah said, he said only a remnant of the Israel will come faith to Christ, come of faith to Christ. Only a small percentage. And God ends up turning the gospel narrative, message, in many ways, over to Gentiles. Gentiles was anything that was not a believer, or it was not a Jew. Roman, Germanic, Spaniard, anything that was in in the world, the, the gospel becomes the power. And it says this in verse 36, and shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness by faith. But Israel who pursued the law and not righteousness, pursued the law and not, not, not grace, would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. And it goes on to talk about a stumbling stone. And that stumbling stone is a reference to Christ. Jesus becomes a stumbling block to them. And then it goes on to say, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I got to close by reading one other passage. It's John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Because I think it's the saddest, most succinct passage in the Bible. It tells the story of Jesus when he came to the Jewish people as a Jewish person. He said he he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, Israel, Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. And listen, I am not in any way bashing a people group. In fact, I'm praying that the remnant of, of Israel would grow. But I'm also saying this. God has given his message to you and me as Gentiles for the world. We do what we do around here for his name because there's a God and I'm not him and I'm going to let God be God. And if he gave me the the message to give to the nations, as we're going to see next week in Romans chapter 10, we've got a responsibility. God has sovereignly given us a responsibility to carry the gospel to the nations. We've got to own it. We've got to own, first of all, where is our heart? Is it like Pharaoh's? Has it been hardened because of our own hardness? Where is our heart? Would you bow your heads with me?
Just breathe deep for a moment. It's been a lot, a lot. 1,500 years we've covered in 15 minutes. But it's Romans 9. We've got to do it. I, I, I want you to ask you where you are as it relates to God. Are you living out the purpose that God has for your life? He had a purpose for Jacob. He chose Jacob. Not to the exclusion of Esau, but he chose Jacob for a beautiful purpose. Are you living out the purpose God has for your life? He also chose to use a Pharaoh. He had a hard heart. He had one God after another God that God had to tear down in his life. I I pray that he doesn't have to tear down your life so that you know he is the God of the universe. Father God, would you soften our hearts today that we would hear from you we would speak deeply and we would come out in absolute awe and worship of you. You are an amazing God. We bow ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand? Sing with us.